Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tell everybody, come back home. New Orleans is where you belong. Mardi Gras is a culture in itself, but within that culture, there's a subculture called the Mardi Gras Indians. In New Orleans today, I think the highlight of it all is the fact that folks want to know, where are the Indians? One of the greatest kept secret in America and throughout the world today is the Mardi Gras Indians. transformation that's being done when you're sitting down sewing these suits. And Mardi Gras Day, if you have done your work, then you will be transformed to who you're supposed to be that day. I sew all day, I sew all night. You gotta sew, sew, sew. I sew till the day I break a dawn. You gotta sew, sew, sew. Picking you on the picking you on the telling what I say. One Mardi Gras morning, very young age, I got a chance to see the Indians as they passed in my uh, house. And I was very excited about it and wanted to know what was about it, what was going on with this. And what drew me to them, more than the feathers and the, the marabou and the suit itself, was the chance. Yeah, this is a, I am Chief, Big Chief too, the Allison, Montana. I made 52 suits, so I made 52 years. But uh, I played it cool because when I told my mother that I wanted to make a suit that year, she said, oh, no, boy, uh, you don't want to fool with that because during my dad's time, they used to fight. It was dangerous. Back then, everything was secret. Hush, hush, nobody didn't talk about it as much. Mighty Guayanian was a secret society. There's a secret about mass and Indians that very few Indians know, and it's so simple. You got to love it. You got to do it from your heart. You got to push that needle when nobody else can understand why you're pushing that needle. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old. Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears, 
fables, myths, and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to welcome all of you back. We're so happy you're here, and I would like to tell each and every single one of you that you are the prettiest. I'm the prettiest. I'm the prettiest. Humba. Don't know how. We'll get there. (laughs) So, guys, we want to welcome all of you back. Programming note, as you probably noticed, we're going to go bi-weekly for a little while just to play catch up. Yeah, Christmas kind of kicked our ass this year, guys. And snow. And snow. God, y'all, winter weather's awful. Why do y'all have that everywhere else? It seems like everyone would have gotten it together, you know, 100 years ago or so, maybe two, and been like, let's make the world warmer. Oh. Oh. Hmm. Hmm. (laughs) We don't welcome all of you back. We don't encourage everybody to reach out to us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, all at Just a Story Pod. Go on to iTunes, leave a rating and review. We do have two new reviewers to thank today including kelsey sj and sombra k9 thank you guys you're lovely and also you can check out our website at justastorypod.com and that's where we keep the information yes information that's right um you find links to all of our sources you can find all of our back catalog of episodes you can listen to the episodes there you can see artwork oh and there's a link there there's a link that will take you right to our merch store merchy merchy merch store we just put out a new shirt for the last episode it's a it's a pallid bust of edgar Allan poe that's yeah obviously and also on the website you can find links to the patreon page and we do have two new patrons to thank Catherine and shay Ta-da! So they got access to all of our new episodes. We'll be mailing them some stickers and goodies soon. And also, all of our patrons will have access to our travel logs, which will be up soon. We did them for Washington, D.C., and everyone loved them. And we'll be going to New York, and you should check those out coming up. Hey, can we expense those trips on our taxes? We can try. (laughs) Well, if you know the answer to that or any of my other rhetorical questions, you can call the Urban Legend Hotline. And the number for that is 512-222-3375. And when you get there, you'll get our voicemail and you can record yourself singing a song or telling a joke or a story or answering the question, can we claim our trips to D.C. and New York as expenses for the show on our taxes? But be right, please. We don't yeah. want to go to jail. I don't know if I'm going to take that advice. We've got really smart listeners. I bet someone out there is a tax attorney or dated one once. Oh, well, that matters. <laughs> he told her everything about it. That's why. Or not. she told him. Oh, no. He was a boring guy attorney. I can just <laughs> tell. I feel it. Anyway, if that's you, call us. So, Sam. Back, so, Jacob. Back to the stories at hand. So many stories. All the stories, as always, my fellow Americans in the foreign land of Louisiana. <laughs> so are they our fellows? It's everything. Okay. It is now Mardi Gras time. It is carnival season. It is upon us. We're in the thick of it. And we just returned from spending a weekend in New Orleans doing our Mardi Gras thing and having a good time. And we were inspired. We took the kids down. It was their first time at New Orleans Mardi Gras. It's not all like that, y'all. It's not all what you saw in Girls Gone Wild. And why were you watching it anyway? Shame on you. But no, there's Family Gras. Family Mardi Gras. This was not Family Gras. It was <laughs> no, regular it's Mardi real, Gras. Like, but we were not in the, the mud and the blood and the beer, as Johnny Cash would say. <laughs> but we have been. We have. So we did do an episode early on, episode 12, on the Corriere de Mardi Gras, which is the... the 
The Kunas Mardi Gras. The rural Cajun Mardi Gras. Mm-hmm. And today we're going to focus on, on a more urban element and, and just as unique and interesting element of Mardi Gras and carnival season. Jacques Mofino. So Mardi Gras Indians. Mardi Gras Indians. Mardi Gras Indians. So Jacob and I did go do the mud and the blood and the beer kind of Mardi Gras a couple of years ago. And we wound up on Frenchman Street, which is a great place to wind up. Definitely should go. Like if you go to New Orleans, make that your first night, not bourbon. In complete seriousness. But we went into one of the old standard clubs, you know, like the ones that have been around forever. And I can't remember which. Blue Nile. We went to Blue Nile. And we were there... And we were talking to these people from out of town and I like see this flash of color and I turn and there is a man in a mane of feathers about to get on the stage, stepping up. Sam proceeded to freak out. I flipped my shit. You would have thought I just saw like George Harrison's ghost or something. Like it was a huge, like I was super excited and I was super excited because it was a Mardi Gras Indian and that's exciting enough. But it wasn't just an Indian. It was a chief. Big chief. It was big chief. They were out announcing where big chief and his tribe were going to be the next day. And we just happened upon them. And the reason that it had to be announced is because it is not printed. Oh, no. It is not on the New Orleans Parade Route website that you pull up. There is no tracker app for those parades. Oh, no. no. Oh, no. This is underground. This is fabulous. It is Crazy ass New Orleans at its absolute finest. And that was my like moment of communion with the Mardi Gras Indian gods. And I tell you what, they're pretty. They are pretty. They're the prettiest. They're the prettiest. So Mardi Gras Indians, you may have seen images of them, you know, printed out in books. They were in vogue. They were. You know, over the last few years, they have become a little more visible as people have focused more on kind of the unique aspects of New Orleans culture with the rebirth of New Orleans. Well, it's like we almost lost it. Maybe we write these things down. Yeah, maybe we need to appreciate it a little more. It's not your dirty cousin Eddie in the RV out front, you know. What Really, what's the movie without him, Clark? I'm serious. You want a beer? So, if you've seen Treme, there's a great storyline in Treme about the Mardi Gras Indians. There were Mardi Gras and Beyonce's Lemonade video. But Mardi Gras are like African-American revelers who wear costumes, kind of inspired by Native American ceremonial dress. They group into various tribes or gangs, which can be a few people, up to several dozen members. Each tribe has a unique name and usually represents a neighborhood. So, what are some of the names? Oh, well... They usually blend like Native American words, maybe African words, with, of course, some American words. American <laughs> so, or Southern? Well, it depends, because you got like the Creole Wild West. Oh, well, that is f- fantastic. The White Eagles, the Wild Chapatula. What's a Chapatula? A Chapatula is a long lost Native American tribe. It's also a straight. <laughs> you also have the. Guardians of the Flame, Congo Nation, Mandingo Warriors, Yellow Pocahontas, Wild Treme, among many others. And so, like you said, this is kind of a very secretive celebration. Larry Benock, the former president of the New Orleans Mardi Gras Indian Council, described it as the parade that most white people don't see. The times and locations of the parade vary, so unless you're part of the community, it's not easy to predict when they'll be around. Now, Lola's Eric L., who is a 
cultural expert of New Orleans, said that black people are the owners, practitioners, and judges of the spectacle. The spectator remains the type of people who have been there for the last hundred years. White folks want to see the Indians. They have to see the Indians on their own turf. Which is kind of awesome. Because if you, like, we went down to Uptown Mardi Gras float parades last weekend. Yes, the classic cruise, hundreds, thousands of people in them, huge floats, throwing beads, all kind of shit. Kids at a blast. Great time for the kids. But it's very much like, it's expensive to do. Like, it costs a lot to be on a crew. And... There are so many different crews now that basically anybody that wants to do it can do it. There's not a lot of prep time put in. Like they have people who coordinate, but it's like there are people they pay to make their floats. There are people that, you know, they order bulk costumes, they order bulk beads, they and it's very much a production. And it's fun for the people who are riding, it's fun for the people who are watching, but it is not really locally sourced. I mean, some of the bead shops and stuff are local, don't get me wrong. That's a, a good value of New Orleans people. They generally try to keep it close to home but it's not hand done it is now like a disney world style production yeah it's not as kind of personal or homespun as it used to be back in the day so while it is a tradition the float parades are definitely a new orleans tradition that's absolutely true it's become not commercialized but slicker yeah but it's been like that for a very Mm -hmm. long time a very very long time and so that the Mardi Gras Indians still keep this kind of traditional feel to things is very interesting. So if you were to, let's say, be out on Frenchman Street and have a come to Mardi Gras Indian Jesus moment and hear where the root or where the start, I should say, of the Mardi Gras Indians parade would be, which parade is more of a procession, mm-hmm. um, you could go out to that area. Let's say they're, say they're going down Rampart Street or something. And... You would see, first, Spy Boy. My Spy Boy and your Spy Boy sitting by the fire. The Spy Boy is that first scout. He locates the rival gang and kind of shares that intelligence with his gang. Via? The Flag Boy. Flag Boy is next. So Spy Boy is out way in front. He's a scout. He's about three blocks ahead of the rest of them. And about midway back, there is a Flag Boy. He's got the tribe's flag. He uses it to signal the chief, let him know if there's another rival gang or tribe up ahead. So one Mardi Gras Indian was talking about the different roles, and he loved being a flag boy. He said, you see, when you carry the flag, you're in the front of the gang. You give the signal. When you're with the chief, you got to be in the back, and you got to worry if someone's acting bad. But with the flag, you're free. You're free. You wave your flag. You do what you want. Yeah, that was Ike Edward. He was a he's a 93 year old guy who lives in Donaldsonville now. Who used, who's been masking since like the 40s forever. So the next guy you might see is the wild man, and he has a more unique costume. It's almost like a Viking, you know, well, like I a, think like a bull. Like he's got big horns usually and more fur. Yeah, because their job is to kind of make way for the gang and the tribe and the chief. They're the muscle. Coming forward, yeah. And they also are kind of jester-like, and they can kind of act the fool. Mm-hmm. And hop around and charge people and just things like that. But then, now the wild man has cleared the way, you start to hear the chanting and the singing, and Big Chief comes. Big Chief is the leader. It's the patriarch. It, the one with the most ornate and fantastical costume. And also the best singing. Singing's integral to everything. 
2D Montana, Big Chief, who we'll talk about later, said, you got the first chief, which is Big Chief. First queen, you got second chief, second queen, third chief, third queen. First, second, and third chiefs are supposed to have a queen with them. That's just tradition. I found them doing that. Your fourth chief is not called fourth chief. He's called trail chief. From there on, it's just Indians. No title. No title. And they kind of do work their way up the ranks. But also, there is an inheritance to it, too. And if you're a dad's big chief, there's a very big likelihood you're going to be big chief. And you're saying, Tootie, he said, today they don't do like they used to. Today you're not going to see any spy boy with a pair of binoculars around his neck and a small crown so he can run. Today a spy boy looks like a chief and somebody's carrying a big old stick. It's been years since I've seen a proper flag. Today everybody has a chief stick. So, you're watching this insane, amazing procession of these beautifully costumed people. And you may see two tribes come together and meet. And they square off. This is time for battle. It's like bird of paradise battle. <laughs> Nowadays it is. So one might call out for the other big chief, Umba. And the other big chief would say like, probably no. <laughs> you bow. Like, no, you Umba. And so they go back and forth a little bit and they preen and they like show off and they eye each other. And Umba means like to humble yourself, to bow down. Mm-hmm. Generally... I don't think one of them actually bows to the other. I think it's more like a... They can't bow in those costumes. No, they can't bow in those costumes. And so they just kind of have like the symbolic back and forth. Yeah, they usually call to each other like, I'm the prettiest big chief. And I love that they use pretty. Like in all of my research, everything I read, everything I listened to, that is the word. It's not like, I'm the toughest, I'm the biggest, I'm the best. It's like, I'm the prettiest. Bow down to me. Which is amazing. <laughs> and usually there's some kind of affirmation and appreciation of each other's costuming and beadwork and all the work they've put in over the last year to make their costume. Right. So, of course, they parade on Mardi Gras Day. There aren't other days they parade on. Now, one of the big events that you can go to that is a little more publicized and it's done like this on purpose so people can kind of go experience it. It's called Super Sunday. Super Sunday is Super Fun Day. Okay. Slogan. Just do my part. <laughs> Thanks. But it is more of a like public event. It's advertised. People know it's happening. It, and it's very much all about the Mardi Gras Indians. Yes, yes. And it usually is around St. Joseph's Day. So the Mardi Gras Indians also prayed on St. Joseph's Day. And that is more like the traditional Mardi Gras uh, marching where they kind of go up to their gangs and things like that. And St. Joseph's Day is one of those feast days that is very integral to the New Orleans culture. Right. It's uh, originally celebrated by Italian-American immigrants. There are huge St. Joe's altars in New Orleans. It's still a thing. It's still practiced. And you will remember, it's also a major voodoo holiday in New Orleans. That's right. So the St. Joe altars are ornately built displays of usually bread it can be other things as well foods but it's food but it's set up in a way that's very visually appealing and oftentimes kind of staggering proportions or you know accomplished um so that too is a big spectacle and there are you know church processions and things of that nature that take place that day as well so no one really knows why 
they mask on St. Joseph's Day or around it. And I, I this was one thing I was like, I need to find this out because I didn't know the answer to it. <laughs> well, I have a theory. And well, is this, I know the answer. Was the I know. I'm just saying, like, to me, I was like, oh, they called voodoo men Indian doctors, and you got these Mardi Gras Indians, and they're all happening on St. Joseph's Day. It's something to do with the voodoo. I mean, it's one of those things to where there's no, like, super direct ties, but mm-hmm. it's the same community. Right. There's going to be some touching. There's going to be some blending over of things. Oh, in New Orleans? No. no. Never. <laughs> Now, some people think that it might be related to those St. Joseph's celebrations that like Sicilians and Italians were celebrating. They're having these big raucous parties in the working class districts of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And it was a time where they could kind of get out and their costumes were still new. It's only you know, usually either a week or two or a month or so after Mardi Gras, depending on the liturgical calendar. But there are reports of Mardi Gras Indians masking on St. Joseph's Day from before World War One. So that is not a new phenomenon. The Super Sunday thing came about in the late 60s. Right. That's around the time that they started making like appearances at the Jazz Fest and stuff. Yeah, 1970 it was the first year they appeared at the Jazz Fest, which, of course, you've probably heard of now. It's this huge thing you can go to. Back in the day, it was a smaller event held at Congo Square. Mm-hmm. They could not do it there now. I wish they would. I wish they would too. It's, I've worn so many shoes. But that was the first time I ever like got to sit down and talk with Mardi Gras Indians. And it was a very, very cool experience because they were just there with their costumes. And everybody's out. Like They've come to see Simon and Garfunkel and they are not worried about them. <laughs> you know, like they do attract crowds and they're dancing. But in that downtime when they're just sitting, you know they get bored. And you know that I'm going to ask them 500 questions. Which she did. Which I did. And the guy that was there was super nice and talked and talked with me. I was so excited that I got to do that. But we'll talk about him later. You know, I mentioned that there were reports of them marching around before World War One. So, migrants have been around since the late 1800s. So, Alice Zeno, whose son was a famed jazz clarinetist, mm. gave a oral history in 1958, where she kind of talked about all things you know, New Orleans, and described Montegro Indians in the 1880s and 1890s, saying they dressed like real Indians, not like now, like wearing guinea blue dresses with stripes, red and green, and a little short, short waist. And so that is more of like the the same kind of clothing that the Native Americans in the area, like that were indigenous to like the Delta region wore. Yeah, it sounds a lot like a Choctaw mm-hmm. a kind of ceremonial dress. And you'll remember from our Marie Laveau episode that the Choctaw were very much a presence in New Orleans, like in the city proper. Like they came and stayed in her yard. Yeah, and they'd, go, they'd go to the markets yeah. outside of Congress Square. They were, without a doubt, interacting. There was a lot of cultural exchange happening. And of course, we also mentioned in that episode that prior to the Civil War, a lot of escaped slaves would seek sanctuary with Native Americans. You know, they would run away, go down into the bayous and the swamps, and were taken in by the Native American groups. And many married and had kids and things like that and created these maroon colonies. Right, and that's something that you saw a lot of in Haiti as well. But anywhere where there was a slave population and a Native population, these kind of things would happen because I guess the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. Yeah, I think there was some of that. You know, there were some 
they're doing y'all wrong too. Yeah, they're kind of understanding. Yeah. So, of course, you had the Native Americans intermingling with the escaped slaves and, of course, the Creoles, along with your free people of color and your lower class white citizens, all in the markets and around Congo Square. So a lot of mixing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of mixing around here, <laughs> as you've probably come to know. So one other interesting element that could be involved in the creation of the Monte Grandians as we know it today is Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Uh-huh. So I want to do a whole episode on this one day. Of course, but a brief synopsis. So Buffalo Bill was Bill Cody, William Cody, a former Pony Express writer. That's right. See that episode. But he went on to create Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Right. And it was a self-mythologizing, traveling exhibition of all things Wild West. Like, if he actually did something, you know, with General Custer or whatever, it would be written up, and they would be dramatizing it two weeks later. So it was very much contemporaneous new material being performed usually by people who were actually there. He did incorporate real Native Americans into his show. And he also had um, black people as well. There was at least one black cowboy documented at the time that it wintered in New Orleans. And there were, of course, some cowhands and stuff like that, too. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of where the beginning of that Wild West mythology begins. Right. Like, as we know it today, like kids playing cowboys and Indians on the Leave it to Beaver show or whatever, like that kind of lunchbox lone ranger idea gets started yes yes the hollywood kind of idea so the show wintered in new orleans from 1884 to 1885 and was hailed by the daily picayune as the people's choice oh well in the next year 1885 there was the new orleans international cotton and world trade fair which was a big deal and saw the creation of city park and audubon park things like that but They also had an exhibit of the Plains Indians art and culture. Interesting. Along with several Plains Indians that came. And in Mardi Gras in 1885, 50 to 60 Plains Indians marched in native dress on the streets of New Orleans. That is very interesting because a lot of times people will cite that that is the inspiration for the shape of especially the headdresses and things like that. They will always comment that it looks like what the Plains Indians wore. And while there's a great deal of documentation that the black population of New Orleans had access and mixed with Choctaws and Natchez and yeah, all of those tribes, where would they have gotten this idea? Yeah, the Natchez had like some had like small feathered crowns and things like that, but not, not like the that. What you're thinking of? Not like the Hollywood engine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So later that year, the first Mardi Gras Indian gang was formed. And the tribe was called the Creole Wild West. And it was created by Biquette Baptiste. And he is Tootie Montana's great uncle. Great uncle, yeah. And then also another thing just to mention is that at the time as well, you had the Buffalo Soldiers. Mm-hmm. Which are? So after the Civil War, you had all of these freed slaves that joined the 9th Cavalry Regiment were sent out into the plains to help... Um, move the indians <laughs> ask them nicely if they would not mind please going over there please right mm-hmm. and of course some of those people joined buffalo bills wild west show interesting now there's very much possibility these indian gangs existed 
before 1885. And we just didn't like know what to call it. Documentation. <laughs> yeah. But it grew and grew. In 1925, the New Orleans paper reported as early as sunup, bands of Negroes made their appearance on the streets. Their costumes were of deer skin, packed with beads and hieroglyphic design. The Times Picayune reported in 1932. Early Tuesday morning, arrayed in magnificent Indian costumes with a huge feather headpiece and bead-strung leather garments. The suits and headpieces are not carelessly put together from odds and ends, but equal the beauty of the costumes of the great American Indian chiefs. They leave their settlements early and are the first maskers on the street, their war whoops sending blood-curdling shivers down the spines of children who arise soon after dawn to peer through bedroom windows for a glimpse of the Indians. My gang got ready by the light of the moon, is a traditional boast. Mm. They would meet at the house of the big chief, who organized them and sent them onto the streets by singing their chief's song, My Indian Red. This is the traditional start of the Indian parade. So 1932, we've got hardcore, honest to God, documentation, even of the songs that are still sung today. Like, yeah. we know, like, this is not this thing people did one time. Like, it's a well-entrenched tradition by... 1932. Yes, like 80 years ago. <laughs> like it's insane. So it's referred to as masking a lot, and I know, like in the the Cajun Mardi Gras that we talked about before, their masking is is really masking, mask. covering your face. But a lot of even the older images I've seen of the Mardi Gras Indians, their faces are not covered. Right. So it's more costuming. Yes, it's masking without masks or suiting. <laughs> they don't like the word costume. Yes. Yes, but they call it masking. Okay. That is what the term that is used. So the reason for that might be explained by a 1781 regulation administered by the Spanish governor that because of the great multitude of troops and crews from ships, Spanish and English war, and the great number of free people of color and slaves in the city, the attorney general recommends that all kinds of masking and public dancing by the Negroes be prohibited during the carnival season. So this is the same thing that tore up Congo Square right? for a bit. Yes, and you see that in the 19th century, too, mm-hmm. where they really want to limit this kind of gathering. And then, of course, all the Jim Crow laws right? don't let them parade with the other crews. Because it's not only to keep black people from white people, it's also the other way around. Right. And if you can mask, you can... Mask, you can cover your face, you can go wherever you want. Well, so Larry Bannock also said that Mardi Gras Indians are secretive because only certain people participated in masking. People with questionable character. In the old days, the Indians were violent. Indians would meet on Mardi Gras, and it was a day to settle scores. Mm. Humbug. Humbugs. So back in the day, they were not preening like birds of paradise. Oh, no. Oh, no. They were scrapping. Yes. So Chief Tootie described how fighting was a central component of the Indian experience, saying they used to carry hatchets, razor sharp, and real shotguns. When rival tribes meet, one might demand ritual obsolescence from the other. There's plenty of recordings of the fights being broken up and people being shot. Oh, good. And if they didn't encounter the other tribes on the streets, at the end of the day, they would all meet on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Where their grudges and humbugs could be settled. You know, it's so funny. I just, like, my dad always talks about this, and it's something I've just so never gotten. He's like, my dad and them, they used to just get together and just fight. Just get it out. Festivus. He's like, they would just, yeah, I mean, <laughs> he's like, but, you know, my daddy would beat the shit out of people, and I never, I never wanted to fight like that. 
Like it was a a ritual part of their like going out and carousing is getting into these scrapes. And it seems like that was just an outlet. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So with that like kind of origin of the, the fighting being an integral part, there's a lot of, you know, back and forth on what were those costumes like way back in the day mm-hmm. when they're still scrapping. Well, they couldn't be heavy because, like we said, you can't even kneel on what they wear today. No, you couldn't fight in that. It would have to be... More like your skins. Yeah, yeah. It'd have to be something where you could fight, although it's still elaborate and still might put a lot of work into it. It couldn't have been as big, but it's really no one knows because the earliest photographs of Mardi Gras Indians are from 1945. So after... World War II. Yes. And, and the culture, it's shifted. That's a bit. when it started to shift. After yeah. World War II, it became more of the preening and more of the singing and dancing. They're like, we have seen enough of the, the violence. <laughs> I know. That's got to be part of it. It has to be. Yeah. But that first photograph is in 1949, and it has that traditional kind of plains Indian style, big war bonnet, single row of brown turkey feathers. Descending to the ground with a big apron adorned with beads and sequins, other shiny kind of items over a velvet or satin shirt and fringed pants. One interesting kind of little note that you'll hear about this costuming is, you know, was this maybe a kind of Native American substitution for African ceremonial memories that was much more politically safe? Right, because there was such a fear of that. African heritage. I mean, you can go back and listen to like their Haiti episode and see that like certain images and icons and practices were banned because the white people got nervous. White people got nervous. Remember, that's Mm. the title of like history. Yes. And so you see this kind of substitution happening with the Loa and Catholic icons, right? Right. So in the same way that it was a safer way to practice things safer way to practice your spiritual heritage could this be the same thing using native american dress as a substitute for traditional african dress and there's not an obvious answer there's a lot of answers to that question but really one of the most integral parts of this event are the costumes so one of the traditional mardi gras indian songs that you'll hear is called so 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 and that's not a question. It's not like so, so, so. It's like so, like a verb. S E W. Yeah. Some of the lyrics. I sewed, sewed all night long. Somebody got a so, so, so. I sewed that morning, went carrying on. Somebody got a so, so, so. Say, boy, just jump me with a Gatling gun. Somebody got a so, so, so. I sewed, let him come. I got a so, so, so. So, under threat of Gatling gun, he's like, don't care, still sewing. <laughs> And it is important to note that the men are the ones doing the sewing. Yes. This is very male centric. And like in Cajun culture, a lot of times the women will make the suits for the men to go play in. Yes. Not here. Don't look at me like that. Not here. (laughs) So our 93 year old friend, Ike Edward, whose quote we read about being a fly boy earlier, is a font of living history. And he described what his earliest experiences were with masking as an Indian. And he said that they would go to a junkyard and scavenge for discarded women's dresses, especially carnival ball gowns from rich uptown ladies. We'd look for beaded lampshades or anything else that had embellishments, sequins, or sparkling detail. And they'd take a razor blade and cut off the sequins and sew them onto the suits. 
If a lady had a pretty pair of earrings, we'd put that in our suit, Edward said. They'd send them to the junkyard, and we'd go out and cut them up and take them and make them into our suit. He reports that feathers came from the butcher shop whenever an especially impressive chicken or turkey was killed. They would try to get in touch with them, especially around Thanksgiving. You know, they'd call and say, like, save me the feathers. I'm going to get the feathers. And finding white feathers from a turkey or a goose was a true rarity and left the Mardi Gras Indians using Tintex fabric dye to ensure that they matched their suits. Because in the end, it was all about one thing. Being pretty. Being pretty. Being the prettiest. The prettiest. I read somewhere they also, back in the day, we used, like, fish scales. Oh, I'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. So to prove you're pretty, you took a picture, Edward said, pointing to a formal portrait he has of his final suit that was taken in 1952. That suit earned him second prize in a contest the Mardi Gras Indians held at Booker T. Washington High School. Almost the prettiest. (laughs) So he still sews, but he doesn't walk the roots anymore. But today the craftsmanship has evolved into a very polished art form. Now the one thing that you must know about the suits worn by Mardi Gras Indians is that they are handmade painstakingly they are feathery they are very feathery they are heavily beaded ornate and big they are big so usually whenever they're you know they're sewing and if they prick their finger just wipe it on the fabric because it's all going to be covered by beads anyway no you're putting the blood you're putting your sweat and tears into it i mean that too but like both are an interesting comment on the level of work that goes into it (laughs) So there's like an unofficial competition, like there are no blue ribbons passed out, but everyone comes away feeling that they know they're the prettiest. Right, and that's what kind of replaced the actual fighting. (laughs) Oh yeah. Edward says, the big chiefs decided our territories weren't worth battling over because we didn't own any of it anyway. They said a chief's job is to protect his tribe and make sure the Indians got home safe. And they changed our motto to kill them dead with needle and thread. Nice. So Dow Edwards, who's now a spy boy, said he spent about five hours each day over the course of nine months preparing his suit. And that's you know, a modern today one. So according to one of the queens, Miss Harrison Nelson, you never really finish a suit. You just put it on. Put on what you got and go. Yeah, you would never finish a suit. You'd be working on that till the second you walked out the uh, door. All I can think about is the kids' Halloween costumes and like how that is, where I'm literally sewing them into it. <laughs> But when a big chief comes out, he can be carrying anywhere from 80 to 300 pounds of suit. It's amazing. I mean, it's a physical feat just to walk in that. It is. There are three basic components to the suit, and they will be different. No two suits are the same. There are no rules. But there are kind of three main things that you can think about. There's the headdress or the crown, and what they call a dickie, and an apron. Now, the headdress... Is a headdress. Is a headdress. But it's not like a Plains Indian headdress. Not Not anymore. anymore. It's more like the carnival headdresses that you would see like in Brazil. Yes, yes. You can definitely see this kind of Caribbean, Brazilian influences there. And then there's the dicky, which is a chess piece. And it spans the upper chest to the waist. And they're usually beaded front and back. And they usually have scenes that have some sort of narrative quality to them done in the beadwork. It's so interesting to see the things that they choose to put on the chest plate. Because that's, you know, that's your big picture. That's, you can do a big, big image there. And a lot of times it will be Native American imagery. But also there will be imagery about like race relations and things that are going on in New Orleans at the time. Or I in saw, the country. I saw one girl that had like a portrait of two 
elderly black people, I assume, are like her parents who had passed. You know, like a lot of times they'll be dedicated in memory of someone or like, you'll, but you also have like a Native Americans hanging a white soldier. <laughs> I saw one with a lynching on it. Oh, with the KKK in the background yeah. and everything. Yeah. And so they can be really interesting commentary. They're not flowers and happy gestures. Right. They usually save that for the other pieces. Now, the apron is a piece that has a lot of variations. Some people will bead pants instead of having like a full apron. Sometimes the apron can be a very large canvas that is like wider than a person. Um, Sometimes it's like a teardrop shape. Sometimes it's just kind of like a a straight rectangle shape varies a lot. It's another space where you can do a large image. Now, Alfred Doucette, who's a chief with the Flaming Arrow tribe, began making his own suits in 1988. He said, I was doing some carpentry work at a house and I saw this picture resembling a battle scene and it gave me this idea of how Indians used to live. He was inspired to create a suit, which he called Brother John. A lot of suits have titles, which I find really interesting. You know, the piece will have a concept and the concept will become a title. So this one was called Brother John, and it depicted a Native American man fighting off Spanish soldiers on the dickey, while the apron showed the burial of that same warrior. He said, a lot of Indians, so from a vision or a dream, my suits usually represent people's pain. And so like the title Brother John comes from one of the traditional like Mardi Gras Indian songs. Mm -hmm. So everything melds. The music, the performance, the costuming, it all coalesces. So typically an Indian suit makes its debut on Mardi Gras and then the suit is retired after Super Sunday. You don't just like make a suit and wear it as long as it fits. But to begin, a designer will develop a concept around which to build a suit. The concept can be anything from like a favorite animal to a pictorial image that depicts a current social issue. Each design is drawn freehand on canvas, then it's beaded or sequined, and then the individually beaded pieces or patches are sewn together using colored fabric, which may also be beaded or otherwise embellished. And feathers are almost always, almost always added. Gotta have the feathers. Gotta have the feathers. You make you pretty. Now, suits can be sold for around $30,000 each after they're retired, but most people do not sell their suits. Most people just keep them in their house. There are some museums that have like a lot of credibility within the community, like the House of Dance and Feathers is one, and then the Backstreet Cultural Museum. And sometimes they will donate to those museums, but most of the time they're just in people's houses. So Chief Kevin Turner of the Black Mohawks teaches sewing classes specifically focused on sewing Indian suits. He says... What you sow is what you like. You draw what you see. We are our own idea, and we make it come to life. Now, they say that they are commonly used colors. I don't think this is current anymore, but they say that purple, green, gold, blue, and red are the commonly used colors. That's like all the colors, and I'm seeing just as many that are different colors. Basically, you can use colors. Just choose the colors. But white is interesting because I have read that white is often worn during someone's first masking like when they're actually an indian not when your mama dresses you up like your freshman season which let's talk about how cute oh my god it's painfully cute it hurts me it's so cute but anyway but you wear it then and then you wear it on the season that you retire that's what one of the queens was talking about her first white masking where she you know did like a metamorphosis scenes Mm -hmm. a butterflies and, and stuff it was and like a cocoon and It's a fantastic story. She's like, it was my awakening, my reawakening. I thought it was so beautiful. Turner says, each suit has a story to tell. You are telling your story. 
So we watched this excellent documentary that was done by the Ohio State University, question mark. Yeah. Why? Okay. Cool. cool. Well done. It's really well done. And I can't recommend the, there are two of them. Definitely link to them for sure on the yes. site. And there's one that focuses on the queens, but the one that focuses on the men is called The Spirit Leads My Needle. And they interview a lot of the different chiefs from around the New Orleans area. And they're kind of talking about the experience of not only making the suit, but their actual Mardi Gras day. Oh, yeah, right. Not just the process. And one guy says, you don't touch anybody. You respect the guy across from you. You can play Indian, but anybody that takes time out to put that needle and thread down, they are beautiful, which I love. And another one says, when you're sitting down sewing these suits, it's a transformation that is being done. And on Mardi Gras Day, if you've done your work, you will be transformed into who you're supposed to be that day. Another guy says, I don't know what what to make when I start. The spirit leads my needle. Colors start coming to my mind. I hear, you don't want to use that color. You want to use this one. Try this one. Look at it. And I believe with all my heart and all my soul and my mind that I am led by the spirit. Another one says, there is no machine that could put down these beads like we can. Another one says, 365 days of bleeding and sticking your fingers and wiping the blood on the canvas. And it just sounded so much like the guy I talked to when we went to Jazz Fest. Because I remember like looking at all those beads. And I was thinking about like how heavy some of the beaded gowns I've worn to like formals and stuff are. I was like, is it heavy? And he's like, no. He's like, I don't even feel it. He's like, the spirit gets in me and I just don't even feel it. It's so much of a passion project. Like there's no advantage to doing it. It is done for the love of the experience. Yeah, I think in, in the ties to everything. Mm-hmm. Everything that comes before. So these costumes are painstakingly created over hours and hours of time, and they are worn about three times. That's about it. Again, Mardi Gras, St. Joseph's Night, Super Sunday. That's it. Maybe Jazz Fest. Sometimes they'll go out nowadays to like cultural events. Like Jazz Fest always has the Mardi Gras Indians. Like that's kind of who brought them into the limelight um, by featuring them on kind of an international stage and they'll go to some other cultural events, but that's really pretty much it. And there are big chiefs that get to a level of prominence within the community that they can like go out and perform music and that kind of stuff too. But those are few and far between. Right. That's not the norm. So chief Kevin Turner, third chief Kevin Turner, excuse me, said that suits used to have to be destroyed because the materials themselves would become spoiled. Until synthetic material became the norm, Mardi Gras Indians made suits from things like fish scales and chicken feathers. And after processions, the suits began to smell because of the rotting material. So each year they would be burned. One of the interesting things about that is that they would, though, like save the beads and save the things Mm -hmm. they scavenged. And they would incorporate that into future suits. And they would kind of have like almost a legacy within their suit of the things they, you know, gathered every year. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. And it, like, literally, the more you did it, the more you acquired, like it showed your seniority, then you're like stacking it up. But now it's just as much about the idea of unveiling that new suit as it is about rotting fish scales. <laughs> yeah, it's become more this new story, this new creation that you can make every year. Mm-hmm. So... You might ask, how does one get to be a Mardi Gras Indian? It does not sound like a highly codified thing. And you're right. And it's the traditional backwoods system. Who you know? You gotta know a guy. One of the chiefs said there are a lot of Mardi Gras Indians who are policemen, educators, lawyers. It's not just guys around the corner who have nothing to do. A lot of people are professional people. For most of us, it doesn't consume our lives 365 days a year. So let's look at our friend Dow Edwards again. 
He has a hell of a resume, but that doesn't matter because he didn't have the right end for a long time. Got another big chief. Got another big chief. Now, this guy was a former wide receiver for the Patriots. He was a former Army airman. He had grown up in New Orleans and returned there after Katrina. And when he did, he found out that the secretary for his law firm, he's an attorney, was dating the Mohawk Hunter's big chief, Tyrone Casby. And that made him have the right connections. Guys in. To be able to get to be part of this. He said, the joy I had when I put on my first suit... There's a certain sense of spirituality that comes from the long process of creation. I'd played professional football in stadiums packed with people cheering, but there's nothing like being a Mardi Gras Indian. And you may say, cool, why? (laughs) If you're still pondering why, let's talk about why a little bit. I'm really not. (laughs) (laughs) I saw the feathers and I was like, in. Edward says, the first time I encountered the Mardi Gras Indians was back in 1968. He said, I saw them dancing and singing and thought, man, I want to be one of them. And so he also says that the importance of the Mardi Gras Indians after Katrina really was palpable and powerful. He says, we still have some depressed neighbors in New Orleans. When the Indians meander through their communities, they provide a sense of belonging and a sense of self. It's about uplifting and empowering people to feel good about themselves rather than less than. And the reporter who was writing the story saw a 12-year-old boy like catch his eye while he was dancing. And he says to Edwards, he's like, I want to be like you when I grow up. And he's like, you want to be a lawyer like me or an Indian like me? And the boy's like, both. That's fantastic. Which I love because it's just like it shows you like the community that's being built up and it really is empowering. It's leadership, inspiration. Role models. Yeah. So there's a charter school in Algiers now, the Behrman Charter School, where kids actually take a course in Mardi Gras Indian sewing as part of their curriculum. And it was championed by a teacher named Liz Arias. And she has help from the Black Mohawks and the Mohawk Hunters, who are like the West Bank tribes. And she said that she felt it was important to incorporate this. They kind of got to vote on what they wanted to do. And a bunch of kids were like, uh, Mardi Gras Indians. And she was like, that's not on the list. It's going to be incredibly expensive. We can't do that. Too bad. And so they like insisted Nevertheless, the children persisted, and so she applied for a grant from the National Heritage Foundation and got it. And she said the kids learned about history and culture and tradition from people who were doing it. You know, they have people from their communities coming into the schools, and they have, like, the Little Opelousas tribe, I want to say it's called. But they had their own, like, tribe, their own queen, their own chief. Oh, like the kids. It's all kids. Fantastic. It's adorable. Now, we've mentioned Chief Tootie Montana a few times. And there's a reason we keep mentioning him. He was the chief of chiefs. And only a select few people get that. It's not like there has to be one. There's not always a chief of chiefs. But he was the big chief of the Yellow Pocahontas tribe. And he kind of helped bring a lot of these Mardi Gras Indian tribes together. And he was also fantastic at the beadwork and singing and things like that. Even receiving a fellowship as a master traditional artist from the National Endowment for the Arts in 1987. We met Tootie. Not for real. Like, really? (laughs) In Louis Armstrong Park, there's a giant statue Mm. of Tootie in full Indian regalia, and it is gorgeous. If you ever go to New Orleans, you should go check that out. So he's also the subject of the documentary, The Last Suit, which focuses on the design, production, and wearing of his last suit. Now, you'll remember that his great-uncle, B. Kate Baptiste started the Creole Wild West. Legend goes. Much, of course. <laughs> you know, there's much consternation and debate about who started it. Again, legend goes that B. K. was 
like part Cherokee and part African American, and so like he had legit claim. No, but that's something you always hear people say is like it was started by a guy who really was an Indian, and so that that's part of the the argument that we'll get to later. <laughs> but Tootie was born in 1922, and his dad was also a big chief of the Yellow Pocahontas, which was an outgrowth of the Creole Wild West. Which the Creole Wild West is still masking today. Mm-hmm. Now, at the time that this big write-up was done, which was in 1998, he was the oldest continuously masking Indian in New Orleans. And when he was a kid, his father dressed him up, but he was not totally into it. And he didn't fully participate until he was 25. But while he was a teen, he masked as a skeleton with his skeletons and the baby dolls, which is another New Orleans thing. Which has just recently kind of been revitalized in the last yeah, few Yeah, people years. found it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Bone and Skull gang didn't really go away, but the baby dolls have come back. Yeah. Now, he is a fluent speaker of French Creole as well as English, and he grew up in a home with his extended family. He says, it was 21 of us living in the house, and during those times, people didn't worry about living rooms. There were six bedrooms and three kitchens. And his family was all comprised of plasterers and carpenters and other craftsmen, and he feels that like growing up around that kind of workmanship really empowered him to work with his hands. Now, he moved away to California for three years, but when he came back to New Orleans, he discovered that his father was coming out of masking retirement to be big chief for Yellow Pocahontas, and he decided that he wanted to mask under him. But his first suit was thrown together in two weeks. That's not going to do. He's recounting, like, talking to his dad about, like, wanting a mask. He says he'd been trying to get in touch with him and trying to get in touch with him. He says, that's what I'd come to see you about. I'm interested. I want a mask. He laughed at me. He said, oh, boy, you got to be kidding. I said, no. He said, you know Carnival ain't but two weeks off. You can't make a suit up that fast. I said, oh, yeah, and I did. But his father made his crown for him, and that didn't sit right with Tootie. And he decided that he was never again going to depend on anyone else to make his suits. And the next year, what he unveiled was truly impressive. His father had decided against masking that year, so a man named Robert Guidry stepped up as big chief. But when he saw Tootie, Tootie says, he whispered in my ear and said, man, look, you're prettier than I am. You go ahead and be the chief. And I said, no, you're the chief this year. But next year. In 1949, Tootie founded his own gang, the Monogram Hunters. But then after Yellow Pocahontas was inactive for a year, he changed the name of the Monogram Hunters to Yellow Pocahontas. And reformed that group. And he served as big chief through 1997 when his son, Daryl Mutt-Mutt Montana, took over. He says, a lot of people think my father showed me how to make Indian costumes, but he never showed me anything. As a matter of fact, he was surprised. He didn't want to see me outdo him either. He had this history of having a pretty crown. If you're really into this, like my daddy was, like I am, then you're really proud. I learned by making mistakes. The one thing about making those crowns, the feathers didn't flop. The feathers stay sewn down tight. They didn't move. And he had made this star crown, a new type of crown. And I said, you know, I remember you having that star crown all years ago. I want to make a crown. How would you make it that it flop? And he just looked at me and put his hand in his chin and smiled. He would never tell me how it would go. He shook his head like it couldn't be done. But I was determined. I was only sorry that I made that crown after he was dead. And so he really was one of the people that pushed that design to kind of what you see now, these massive three-dimensional costumes. He was one of the people that stopped doing the war bonnets and started making the different kinds and shapes of crowns. He said every piece was put on there one at a time. You pick up a sequin, you pick up a bead, 
Even those beads around a stone, they are threaded, and you hook them up one at a time. I use glue after I put my pieces together. I make the pieces like a puzzle. He also started adding like these three-dimensional geometric figures to the actual infrastructure of the costume. Also created more of the representational designs that we were talking about earlier, where you see, you know, like narrative, almost comic book-like scenes. Yeah, a full story just on that one piece. But speaking about those three-dimensional designs, he says, everybody was flat. I was flat until I wanted to be different, and then I just started doing it. I started raising my pieces up. My daddy did a little, not three-dimensional. He used the carton that eggs came in. And academics looking at his work note that the style recalls the Haitian rara pants and tunics from the mid-20th century. According to Susan Elizabeth Teslos, the motifs of rara sequin and bead costumes were inspired by garments worn by the French court and nobility during the time of Napoleon, as well as veve. So those are the different like voodoo symbols that represent the different loas. That are ritually and, done. And other things yeah. that we talked about in that episode. I don't think he was intentionally recalling any of that. No. And that's what's so interesting about it. I know. No, he wasn't like reading a historical textbook on costuming in Haitian mid-20th century. (laughs) No, this is passed down. You see the roots. But in addition to his legacy for costuming, he was also integral in changing the activities of the Indians. Right, this is where we go from the fighting being being one of the main components to looking more at the costuming and the masking. He says, I'm the one who changed it from fighting with guns to fighting with suits. Everybody in the city, even the ragmen, in their mind, they think they can outdo me. They be so in to beat me and they get fooled every time. That's right. He's the prettiest. (laughs) By the end of his tenure as big chief, his suits were so large that they had to be lowered down from the second floor balcony onto him. The headdresses. You could definitely see that on the documentary. So this is someone that was so integral in kind of moving the Mardi Gras Indians to that next level, to the next step, where it did become this amazing folk art and cultural institution that it was before, but eliminating the, the violence, fighting out and things like that, it made it a tiny bit more acceptable. Well, and it made it so much more healthy for the community as of well. Of course, they became more role models. Like you said, you'd run toward them now instead of running away from them. Yes. In 2005, there was a harassment complaint filed by the Mardi Gras Indian Council against the New Orleans Police Department because there had been a misunderstanding and things had gotten rough. And the Indians were common targets for angry police officers who were not happy about their existence. And so they called together the Mardi Gras Indian Council along with the city council for a meeting to discuss all of this. And this is during the time when the illustrious Ray Nagin was the mayor of New Orleans. Hooray. I hate hate him. him. (laughs) You can really summarize why you should hate him in one sentence. Uh, The New Orleans public school system makes the only two things we need, maids and taxi drivers. Yeah, that's what he said when they said they should reform the New Orleans public school system. So there you go. That guy. a little background for you. He was mayor during Katrina, too. Yeah. Yeah. So during this council meeting, Mayor Nagin stepped in at this point to tell a story about watching the Mardi Gras Indians as a youth and his respect for the tradition. He reinforced the police version of the St. Joseph's Night Assembly incident as a misunderstanding. The rallying call, not under my watch, was made as the mayor insisted 
that these misunderstandings would not take place again. Two men sitting near both called out, It's been happening! But the mayor continued, emphasizing the value of Indians to tourists, residents, and others. Tourists first. Seriously. This person writes. The next slated speaker was Chief Pepe Tan, who called for all the Mardi Gras Indian chiefs to rise. They stood in the crowd and then made their way forward to surround the podium. They asked for the godfather of the chiefs, the chief of chiefs, Allison Tutti Montana, was called to speak. With 83 years under his belt, this man came to the podium and reviewed the interactions of the police over the past 52 years that he'd been involved. Tutti astutely blew holes in all of Mayor Nagin's exhortations by describing police violence he has seen and experienced over his many years as chief of Yellow Pocahontas. He spoke about police tightening their billy club straps as the Indians approached and the tribe's strategy of simply walking through the lines of police attempting to block their path. He spoke about a cop repeatedly trying to swing a club at his 10-year-old relative's head, the young boy just barely missing a brutal skull injury. He concluded his remarks by looking directly at the city council and declaring, this has got to stop. As he turned from the podium, he fell on the floor. And I think at first everyone was pretty skeptical of what was happening or didn't really understand. It seemed like he could have just stumbled. But then two kids got up and ran to him and started doing CPR. And people began to realize that this was something pretty serious. During this time, Mayor Nagin disappeared. No one knows where he went. And everyone in the room was standing, gaping, kind of in shock. His wife was being held back because they were trying to allow these kids to give him CPR. And she was crying out, just let me see him. There was sort of a hush in the room until the paramedics finally arrived 12 minutes after he'd fallen to the ground. And as they made their way in and started putting him on the stretcher, someone in the room started singing Indian Red, and Tootie was taken to the hospital, where he was pronounced dead. He'd had a massive heart attack in the middle of the city council meeting. And a long time ago, he had said, I sing Indian Red the way my daddy sang it. It's a hymn, like a spiritual They use that song to open practice, and it's also to to identify each member of the tribe and what position they're carrying. And that night, he was very much carrying the position of chief of chiefs. He was speaking for his people on their behalf. He was fighting for their place in the city. Mr. Bannock called Mr. Montana's death the highest honor in the world because he died surrounded by his chiefs speaking for his Indians. Whenever there was a function that was Indian, Tootie was there. Whenever a tambourine was hit, Tootie was there. Tootie lived it. He was an old-time Indian and a legend. In his neighborhood, Mr. Montana was equally known for living right, paying attention to detail, and speaking in a straightforward way. He represented what people wanted to see in an Indian, Mr. Mills said. To his fellow Indians, he was the most respected living Mardi Gras Indian, which is why they officially named him Chief of Chiefs, a title few have held. On the day of his funeral, there was an honor guard waiting outside of St. Augustine Church in their Mardi Gras regalia. He was a total champion for this culture. Not only did he modernize it, bring it to the masses, and literally die fighting for it, but he carried it well. He carried the honor of chief of chiefs very, very well and made people respect him. There was not really a way to not respect him. And that's why there is a statue of him in Louis Armstrong Park. He is, you know, the legend. And the Chief of Chiefs died, you know, while they sang. 
Indian red, you know, which is described as a prayer, as a spiritual. And it just has those words that are so fitting that we won't bow down, down on the ground. And that song was always used to start and to end practices or masking because it really symbolized, you know, what the intent was and also called, you know, like we are the Indians, you know. I love to hear you call my Indian red. Yeah, yeah. And the music of the Mardi Gras Indians is so integral. The costumes and the music are the two biggest parts. And you have this call and response chanting along with tambourines, other kind of handheld percussion. Stuff you can hold while you walk. Exactly. And sometimes they will have brass bands march with them and things like that too. But kind of traditionally, that's what it is. Now this Mardi Gras Indian music really has permeated all of New Orleans music. And funk, soul, jazz, R&B. Shocking. It's a mix. It's a mix. Now, since a lot of the old big chiefs have been passing away recently, moving on to the new generation. So in 2015, one of the other legendary big chiefs, Bo Dallas of the Wild Magnolias, passed away. And he kind of is to music what Tootie was to suits. Yes. He is the other side of that coin. Mm -hmm. He had an amazing singing voice and but there was also there's an improvisation to it too mm-hmm. you have to be able to sing about what's going on right and to start that call and response while you're out there on the streets running into other gangs and things like that like like an eight mile sure <laughs> sure but i mean there is an element to that there right. is an element of the kind of rap just like you know being able to freestyle free yeah but he had just this beautiful voice and he went to the studio and recorded in the 70s. And he combines kind of percussive elements with acapella and also with the funk going on at the time, too. There's a lot of funk in the 70s. It's a good time for funk. Yeah, Wild Child Petula was another one of the gangs that recorded as well with Big Chief Jolly Landry. Jolly Landry is the most New Orleans name I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> and he recorded with members of the Meters, the famous New Orleans mm-hmm. funk group, as well as having the Neville brothers singing backup. Oh, well, what'd you say? <laughs> and Alan Toussaint produced it. God. <laughs> and played on it, of course. Mm. You don't have Alan Toussaint just sitting there, not on the that keys. That does not happen. <laughs> but the Wild Magnolias gained some popularity at the time, and they even opened for Aretha Franklin and Gladys and the Pips and other bands, and also performed at Carnegie Hall. Damn, that's pretty cool. But one of the really interesting things, and we played some of their music at the beginning of the top of the show, is that a lot of the words, you say, what are they saying? They're saying Mardi Gras Indian stuff. That's exactly what they're saying. <laughs> so there's like this, this Creole patois within the lyrics. So patois is not like a true pigeon because it's not really meant to be a functional communication between people speaking disparate languages, but it does share some characteristics. It is a blending hodgepodge that's understood by those who have been exposed to the right kinds of culture and language. So it's a... So it's a mix. It's a, <laughs> it, it's a mix. It's a it's, gumbo. It's a gumbo. <laughs> but it's a Creole patois because it incorporates elements of French. Right, and so you've got your French... English, some Spanish, maybe other words. Maybe Indian. Who knows? Maybe African. Maybe African. So one of the popular songs you'll hear is Giacomo Fino Anane. Say, Ike, Ike, Anane. Giacomo Fino Anane. 
Aiko Aiko Anne. Right, instead it'll be called either Jacques Mo or Aiko Aiko. <laughs> Depending on who you ask and what day it is. And who recorded it. It's recorded oh. under different names. Mm-hmm. So this was the first popular song published that made kind of liberal use of the Mardi Grandian chants in the song. And it was recorded in 1953 by Sugar Boy Crawford uh, on Checker Recording. And he called it Giacomo. And there is a version you'll hear more commonly that was done by the Dixie Cups. Of like, go into the chapel and where? Yeah, and they, so they were like, you know, a girl group like that. And when they were recording in the studio in New York, they had some spare tape and they were just messing around the studio and they sang that song. Ico Ico yeah. is what they called yeah. it. Yeah. And they kind of changed the lyrics up and stuff like that. Grandma's added in. <laughs> but that song actually like really was popular. Mm-hmm. It's really fun to go look that up on YouTube and watch the white kids not know how to dance to it. Like whatever thing they're performing on, like American Bandstand or whatever. And but I don't mean like they don't dance right. I mean like they genuinely like look confused. Because <laughs> there's no music. It's done with that version. It's done just with the sticks. Mm-hmm. See, the song goes, my flag boy and your flag boy. Sitting by the fire. My flag boy told your flag boy. Gonna set your flag on fire. Talking about. Hey now. Hey now. Hey now. Hey now. Aiko, Aiko, Anne. Continues. Giacomo Vino, Anne. Giacomo Vino, Anne. So this song is literally talking about the meeting of two of the Indian tribes or gangs at this time. You know, having that con- confrontation. Mm-hmm. But what the fuck is a Giacomo? That's a wonderful question. <laughs> so there, someone did an interview with him about 15 years ago. Who? Sugar Boy Crawford. So the original recording. Yes, because he made the song up using some of the chants that he, he just heard on the streets. Cool. He said, it came from two Indian chants that I put music to. Aiko Aiko was like a victory chant that the Indians would shout. And Giacomo was a chant that was called when the Indians went into battle. I just kind of put them together and made a song out of them and just kind of put it, the Laudy Miss Claudy beat under it. <laughs> it was so a, it's a mix. Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. It was a phrase that everybody in New Orleans used. I was just trying to write a catchy song. <laughs> Success. Yeah, and so the interviewer for Offbeat was like, some people say that it translates into like, kiss my ass. <laughs> and I read where some think Giacomo was a court jester. And Crawford just responded, I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Because he was not involved in the Mardi Gras Indians. He had always been warned about them by his grandma. (laughs) Sitting by the fire. She's not in the original song. (laughs) Well, if she would have been. Now, another writer from New Orleans was in Ghana. And he was sitting on the beach and heard from a distance. Someone called Aiko Aiko. And someone else responded. A name. Right. So he was like, what the... (laughs) Like, that's the new, that's the song. How did they know this song? It's like when I'm somewhere and I hear Elaba, and I'm like, how did they know my name? And so he was like, I've got to look into this. And went and met Dr. Amuzo, a social linguistics teacher at the University of Ghana. And you kind of ask, like, what does this mean? Saying that it was in the Ewe language, meaning, like, well done, or congratulations. Fantastic. So then the professor grabs the lyric sheet with just the lyrics of Giacomo and is able to sing the song and get the melody right. So like the call and response, like he knows when it's like outgoing, incoming. Like Which is how of- it sounds like Giacomo Fino, Anane, the melody. 
because it's definitely West African. I can tell the sound of each word, what tone comes next, because a lot of these languages are very tonal mm-hmm. in quality. But of course, if it has any West African origin, it's then transferred through Haiti, right? Then to Louisiana, right? And mixed with everything else. <laughs> it's a mix. That's key here. <laughs> so one other song that is very popular is Hebakiwe. Hebakiwe. Right, and so way back in the day, Alan Lomax Sr. was interviewing Jelly Roll Morton. Ah, uh, Jelly Roll. Famous jazz pianist. And he was trying to kind of figure out what these Creole phrases were. Oh, good luck. <laughs> and he wrote down like what he thought it kind of was, saying that like, Hebakiwe is like, Tuwe bakwe, and the response is like entende, which is just a French word. So one possible translation of this phrase is, "I'll kill you if you don't get out of the way." And it's like, okay, got yeah. it. Entende means like we hear you, but really, what they mean is exactly what they mean, exactly what they say, <laughs> because they've surpassed their origins. Everybody knows what you mean when you say it. Like it's used in a in a new way that's culturally understood, meaning it is grammatical with or without historical and linguistic context. Now, of course, we keep talking about how these traditions are such a mix of all of the origins of all the people that are involved, really. And you can see that, of course, in, you know, rock and roll being related down to the blues starting. But the blues coming from these kind of polyrhythmic African beats mixed with the, you know, Native American kind of four on the floor, as one historian uh, described it, kind of building up into that American new music, the blues. You also see with jazz where you have the Native American kind of drum beating or African drum beating mixed in with the, uh, you know, brass bands Mm -hmm. that were ever so popular in New Orleans. But one element that is not usually mentioned is the you know Mardi Gras Indians and the kind of chanting and call and response that becomes so obvious when you think about it like blues music or even like a jazz band leader oh yeah definitely now recently Rounder Records put out an album of tribes like recorded in a bar (laughs) like in their natural habitat kind of thing cool and Bill Morrison was commenting on it and he said In light of the tribe's importance to the history of all Afro-American music, in light of how thoroughly most of the New Orleans music has been picked over by grail seekers looking for roots, it's basically astounding to realize that they have not been on the forefront at all. Mm -hmm. They're not something that's talked about. So as Mac Rebenak said, New Orleans music is Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Cuban, and Mardi Gras Indian. (laughs) (laughs) This guy sounds like he knows what he's talking about. So, Mac Rebneck also goes by the name Dr. John. Oh, 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 he's fantastic. You may have heard of him. So, he was very inspired by the Mardi Gras Indians. He said, my first recollection was, which still sticks with me today, was standing on, on Claiborne Avenue and seeing an Indian on a horse. He was all dressed up in feathers and he hit his face. He had like a spider web painted on his face and body. It was like seeing a Frankenstein movie to me. It was scary. It was like unreality. My father had to pull me out of the way. He was coming right at me. This guy had a sawed-off shotgun, and he was firing in the air to clear the streets for the tribe. I saw this puff of smoke and colored beads come out. It was beautiful to me. So, Dr. John is exactly the kind of person who is like, beads and gun smoke? Beautiful. 
beautiful unreality he wordifies a bit he's really good at it so his father owned a record shop and actually sold race records so race records are like recordings of anyone who's not white basically and they were made to be sold to black communities um and they were sold in those shops right not everyone carried them is much like having like a colored league baseball card today too. Yeah, like, if you found like a box of them in your grandpa's attic, you'd be rich. Would be rich. You'd be like Bitcoin rich. <laughs> so he was. By the way, he's white. It's an important element of this because he's. But he grew. He's from New Orleans. He grew up in New Orleans. Grew up in the Third Ward, and he was always impressed by all the musicians. He always wanted to be a musician. His idol was Professor Longhair. He's awesome. His yes. name is Professor Longhair. If that's not enough, sorry. But he does some of those classic kind of New Orleans piano numbers that you know, but you don't know you know. Um, but Dr. John, or Mac, he had a little bit of a heroin habit. Bit. Skosh. Which he's off of it since 1989 now. But back in the day, his band played in Bucket of Blood joints and strip clubs along Canal Street and Jackson Avenue. Rough, rough, rough. For a time in the 50s, he even ran a brothel and sold heroin. And he got two years in federal prison. But he said at that time, it was pretty great. We worked 365 days a year, 12 hours a night, and did sessions during the day. So when is does he go from being like a guy that did two years in federal prison because of heroin slash brothel owner to glorious, proud Creole peacock that he is? Well, so in 1968, he released an album called Grigri. And this is when he assumed the character of Dr. John the Night Tripper. So Dr. John is a reference to that Dr. John. That Dr. John, yes. That we mentioned in our Marie Laveau episode, one of her contemporaries, the male counterpart to the voodoo queen in lore. Yes, and this character was as over the top as it gets. He would appear on stage in Mardi Gras Indian headdresses, sunglasses, various voodoo trinkets, scaly serpentine accoutrement. (laughs) And his music was just this psychedelic, swirling mess of amazingness. (laughs) New York Times critic Albert Goldman said, Dr. John intones his voodoo spell in a lazy, sexy, sinister drawl before a musical scrim of swamp bottom burbles and water bug Glissanders. Well, you were just uh, worth your 10 cents a word. He can mortify it too. Yeah. But that's actually a pretty apt description of what it sounds like. Verbals is the right word. I wouldn't have thought it, but. But he intently went to take this psychedelic rock, mix it with all the jazz and funk coming out of New Orleans, and create something new. So he wanted to make it a mix. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he'd moved down to L.A., be a studio musician. He was working with Phil Spector. Oh. Really liked the Bucket of Blood people. Uh, with the Wall of Sound, Wrecking Crew. But along with Harold Batiste. So that's another New Orleans musical yes. legacy family. Yes, the Batiste are New Orleans music, yes. He brought all of these New Orleans musicians together. Now, originally, he was going to have their lead singer, Ronnie Barron, play the Dr. John character. That was the plan. And so that would have been more culturally sensitive slash appropriate. Yes. Not that people cared that much in 1969, but he did think about it. He's like, I can't play this character. But Barron backed out, and he was talked into playing the character by his conga player. He said, look, 
if Bob Dylan and Sonny and Cher can do it, you can do it. <laughs> Why those people? Because they were playing black music. <laughs> oh. I thought he meant like they were weird and over the top, which... No. <laughs> also true. But yes, I guess that's true. So one of the stories, like he used to play guitar and bass and piano I've only and all ever, those things. I've only ever seen him play piano, though. Well, that's because early on, when he was with his friend Ronnie Barron... Who was intended to be the Dr. John yes. character. Okay. Prior to his show, a motel manager was pistol whipping him. Oh, Dr. John or? No, Ronnie. Okay, Ronnie. And so Dr. John Mack walks in, steps in, grabs the gun, tries to calm the man down. Clearly. And he still shoots him. No. <laughs> Nearly taking his ring finger off of his left hand. Well, that won't do. Yeah, so the, the finger was saved, but he really couldn't play guitar and bass as well. Couldn't finger, so he focused on the piano. As one writer puts it, he's a genuine New Orleans article who, perhaps more than any white musician before or since, captured the city's various black and Caribbean musical traditions and presented them to the world. Harold Patisse said, We collected our cast of New Orleans refugees. They understood the spirit of what was going down. We'd have to create and develop a vibe in the studio where the spirit led the way. So his stage shows really brought to the world that idea of like what a Mardi Gras Indian looks like. Mm. And those ideas of voodoo and gree-gree and this kind of words and phrases. He had like a girl named Kalinda. Of course. Dance the Kalinda. Who knew all the gree-gree dances, he says. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd have a prince there to bite chicken's heads off. God damn. Okay. But you know, people would ask him like, are you using like real voodoo chants and things like that? He said, no. I went up to some of the Reverend Mothers and I asked them, could I do a sacred song? And he said, but I, I couldn't do that because it was not for a ceremony. So I wrote something similar. <laughs> okay. Which is kind of what they did with Giacomo. Yeah. So he fully just like buys into this thing for about 10 years or so. Cool. And he kind of drops it. Can't get old. But the first album just is super psychedelic, artwork, concept, album. concept yeah. and does it for a few albums. He does a song. Yeah, it's in the right place. Must have been the wrong time. Right. You've heard that song. Yes. You've heard some of those other songs, too. But, like, the liner notes are just this... I call it Kunas Jabberwocky. It is the perfect, like, example of just, like, the in- insanity. It says, who? <laughs> My group consists of Dr. Poopadu of Dusty and Tambourine and Dr. Didymus of Conga, Dr. Boudre of Funky Knuckle Scans, and Dr. Batiste of Scorpio and Bass Cliff. And it goes on. What? I will mash my special Fado dough on all you who buy my charts. The rights of Coco Robichaux, who, invisible to all but me, will act as a second guardian angel until you overwork him. All who attend our rites will receive kites in the second tier of Tit Alberto, who brought the Soto Chapeau to Chauveau Brule up to us from the Antilles of the Bayou St. John. And it, it, it goes on forever. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. I love it. It is Kunas Jabberwocky. It is. I mean, it's just It's nonsense like, poetry. But it's still coded. It has like yeah. those words and, and things like that. But what's great is in 1992, he kind of revisited that kind of persona and like the New Orleans, all the New Orleans classics. Mm-hmm. And he did this wonderful arrangement of My Indian Red, where he's calls out all the names of like the current big and historic big chiefs and all the tribes. And it's just fantastic. So it's a, it's a tribute to... That culture oh, before definitely. there was really a mainstream audience paying any attention. Oh, definitely. 
So it's interesting because he definitely, just like with the Mardi Gras Indians, there's like some appropriation going on, but it's like an honoring of the traditions and trying to kind of bring it forward. And record it. And make it, and making it your own and mixing it and, mm-hmm. and just spreading it. Right. And there's such a fear among people who have like appreciations for traditional songs and that kind of stuff. Like a lot of folklorists will grouse about this, but there's such a fear of culture being lost. Oh, definitely. And after Katrina, especially, that was a huge worry. Like, these things were not recorded. Like, that guy was saying, you know, who recorded the guys in the bar. Yeah. You know, like, cannot believe this has never been really done. Yeah, why is no one talking about this? Right. This is integral. And so the the effort being made to actually get these things down in some kind of permanent fashion is important. But I want to focus on that fusion for a second between, like, all the New Orleans mythology that happened with Dr. John's character, right? Like he combined words that mean everything and nothing and characters that meshed history with legend and current events and all that mishmash. Definitely. But he was aiming for kind of a a feeling of spirituality, of transcendence. Yes. Yes. And that's something that comes through with the practices of the Mardi Gras Indians as well. So an academic who is writing about the folk practice of masking and creation of costumes wrote that African cultures traditionally use the mask as a vehicle to connect the here and now to the spirit world, to invite gods to possess their body and transport the body to another plane of existence. Whether one accepts or understands this level is irrelevant to the fact that masking is near universal among sub-Saharan and particularly West African people. Dancing, singing, and parading on Mardi Gras, or at Indian practice, the Mardi Gras Indians often enter the spirit world of possession akin to catching the spirit in a black church service or being ridden by Loa in a voodoo service. Yeah, I definitely see that imagery just with all the different quotes and interviews you've read that was like, the spirit takes me away. The spirit comes and helps me lift Mm -hmm. this heavy burden. Oh, and the queens especially talk about how it's honoring their ancestors and how they feel like they have, you know, all of their ancestors with them when they're wearing these costumes. It's definitely all tied. Montana explained, if you're real and you do it all those years, I did it with no excuse. They can't hold you back when you get on the floor. It's like a sister in church. You're dancing with the spirit, with a feeling, and there are five or six chiefs at my practice, and I'll outdance all of them. They're short-winded, and they have to run outside looking for air, but I'm still on the dance floor, soaking wet. Look, I can't stop. My duty was to outdance every one of them. I'm just dancing with spirit. I'm not just dancing to be dancing. And there's such an element of, like, a spirit and like a and it doesn't have a name it's not a deity it's like this feeling and this connection to the past and to roots and to ancestors and to yeah, it's like an ancestral spirit right definitely Tootie went on was talking about the year that he got his national endowment award which was 1987 and when they were in the dc area they decided to go on up to new york and his friend maurice martinez brought him to a museum And he said, about a quarter of a block from where I was standing, I could see something looking like a sculpture. And I said, let's go look at that. And man, when I walked out there, it was the funniest feeling that came over me. And I said, Lord, Joyce, my wife said, look at that. You remember you had that? And Maurice had that too. Remember you wore that same design, a design that just came out of my head. And it was not one, but several pieces that I've done through the years on my suit, particularly in front of my crown. I looked 3,000 years ago. Somebody did that. And I said, I'll be doggone. 
that stood on my mind. It hit me kind of funny, and it stayed on my mind. I knew I'd never been to New York, let alone a museum. It was no copy job. I think my creativity is greater than copying. So like, was it like an African design? It was an Aztec sculpture. Interesting. But there's something about the forms and the practice and the dancing that seems like to be almost like this universal force, like this universal creative force that brings these things out of people. And I love that idea so much because it's, it's transcendent. You know, they call themselves Indians and they have feathers, but they're so not. It's so something else. I said recently a lot of tribes and groups have started to have more of a kind of Afrocentric view on things. And it's like Chief Delco describes his traditions as giving thanks in an African Indian way. And sometimes they will call themselves African Indians. That's interesting. It's like mass processions backed with drumming and chanting you know, take place in other parts of New World's African diaspora, of course. But some of the new groups, such as like the Mandingo Warriors, or the Spirit of Fayayay, have been formed. So Big Chief Victor Harris, who helped create uh, the Spirit of Fayayay group, dons a full mask laden with cowrie shells and believes that he's kind of communing with a distinctly African spirit. He said, I work through the spirit that commands me to do this work. I try to get the projection of Africa within. I imagine being there, but it's not anything from books or anything I saw before. I'm in another world trying to finish my suit. It's the spirit inside me. When I mask, I'm full of the spirit. I make everyone feel in the spirit. I'm always on the move. We talked about Miss Harris and Nelson earlier. It's part of the Guardians of the Flame, and they use those African motifs as well. She even calls her group a maroon society, kind of hearkening back to those maroon colonies. Mm-hmm. But you hear a lot of people say that this these costumes are so broadly, generically, almost cartoonishly Indian in character. And they were more in the past than they are now, but they don't have a lot to do with any of the native tribes in that area. Right. You know, like we kind of mentioned, this is related to like the Plains Indians and, and, you know, kind of some of that, you know, sourcing of the imagery coming back from the 1880s. The things that were in Spaghetti Westerns. What would go on to become like the stereotypical Indian and Spaghetti Westerns and things like that. So the question, the burning question with all of this, as we try to be culturally sensitive and broad-minded here, is should we be offended? Yes. This is America. We're always offended. Yes. Are you kidding me? So I actually, for once in my life, read the comment sections below some Don't, articles. No. no. Okay. Don't do it. I found it so interesting because they were not, some of them were bitchy, but most of them were not bitchy. A lot of them were like people from two sides of the world screaming out to each other. Like it was arguments between black Americans who had ties to the Indian, Mardi Gras Indian community, and Native Americans going back and forth about like, is it okay? It feels kind of okay. Feels kind of not okay. I'm not sure. And it was really interesting to read through that because it was just people talking. Like it was an actual discussion. It was an occur, actual right? discussion. So the concept that many people want to debate is, are Mardi Gras Indians participating in cultural appropriation of Native Americans? And my immediate reaction was, shut up, they're awesome and pretty. They're the prettiest. Leave them alone. They can do what they want. But then I tried to like, Stop for a second and like look at some of the finer points of the argument. So what I 
tried to do there is like go in and look at like what could be offensive. So the word Indian is not great. Every time I think of that, though, I think of the Indian speaker at the American Indian Museum right. in D.C. Right. Where he was kind of saying that was a name that was given to us, but it's something that we took. Oh, funny. And we made it our own and we are okay with it. It's okay to say Indian. We, you know, we use, you know, mm-hmm. the, there's the Indian know, affairs. Indian, yes, exactly. Like- it's something we use and have accepted and have made it our own. I can't imagine how that works. But anyway, they don't like the wild man, which I don't see that as a particular comment on Native Americans. But whatever. Yeah, I mean, we can go into wild man motif throughout the world. Yeah, we will. A, we've kind of talked about some, but yeah. like the you know, your jester character that's throughout all cultures. And some of the tribe names are kind of like stereotypical. Like oh, yeah, Some of them are. <laughs> like Geronimo Hunters and Yellow Pocahontas. Like out of context, you can see where that's... And then there's this question that is so awful, and I hate it so much. Like, it lands like a rock every time somebody asks it. Would it be offensive if white people did it? And I'm like, yes, but uh, no. (laughs) All I can think about is the Boston Tea Party. But anyway, so taking all of this into account, I have to say, I think if a group of people of any ethnicity or nationality started doing this today, it might be kind of offensive. But that's not the case. No, it has its own tradition. It is a century-old tradition that has its own unique context and its own unique history. And they have a full-fledged culture that is all their own. And it can be perceived as derivative, but I don't think that's accurate. I think it is more of an amalgamation than a derivation. No, I agree. I mean, it is a mixture of all the cultures in the area. You know, it's what makes New Orleans in general interesting is that it's a mixture of people from everywhere have created their own culture and traditions right it's a great example of it i mean in new orleans everything rubs off on everything else and it seems like for whatever reason there's almost an accelerated rate of cultural exchange and i don't know if it's because people socially mixed more and continued to for longer i don't i don't know what inspires that but it feels like things don't stay isolated But New Orleans was originally an important settlement for Native Americans, then it was French, then it was Spanish, then it was French again, then it was an American territory, then it was a state, then it was a Confederate state, and then it was another state again. So is it possible that the idea of being anything other than a New Orleanian did not have a very long shelf life and people got used to adapting more quickly? I don't know. An academic observes that the ancestors of today's black Indians were Native Americans of the southeastern United States and African slaves who met in places like the New Orleans French Market. And these groups interacted while buying and selling spices, foods, and other goods, and over time developed social networks. The Mardi Gras Indian tribes of New Orleans embody the melding of Native American, Afro-Caribbean, and Afro-American culture. They have retained distinct cultural identities amid urban environments of New Orleans. That's from the National Endowment for the Arts. And you also have to remember that after the Civil War, there was only white and not white. Right. In New Orleans. That's all you get. And therefore, by default, Native Americans and African Americans were classed as other and not white. And right. A lot of Native Americans picked. Yeah. It's like if you could pass... You go one way. <laughs> if not, you're stuck the other mm-hmm. way. So in New Orleans, 
It is perfectly natural that a group of French and English-speaking people of African descent can get together and mask as Indians like rebel English colonists did when they threw tea in the harbor to perform an African-American traditional song that sounds like a spiritual and dances that retain bits of African heritage and incorporate elements of Native American dance that really echo the uniquely Black American jazz second lines as they go up and down streets with French, Spanish, Indian, and yeah, Confederate names on a day celebrated by Italians. And meanwhile, somewhere down the bayou, Haitian, Roman Catholic, and African-influenced voodoo rituals are taking place. What? You don't have that? Sounds right. It makes perfect sense in this one space. And so trying to take them out of New Orleans is really a very difficult exercise for me intellectually. Like I can't imagine being offended by them. Cause I'm like, how, what else was going to happen? You know? <laughs> like, this is the natural thing. We put on the feathers, you go. But it represents a culture of resistance, which is a major through line in both populations. At the center of the most famous Mardi Gras Indian chant, Indian red comes the couplet. I won't bow down on that dirty ground. And part of the ritual meeting between two groups is a loud refusal of either chief to bow to the other. And Ms. Harrison argues that Mardi Gras Indians should be considered some of the earliest civil rights demonstrators for insisting on their rights to process peacefully despite the threat of arrest or police bullying. I think that's so interesting because you can see that early, you know, you can't mask. Okay, we won't wear a mask. You can't, you know, parade with the crews. Okay, we'll just have our own parade over here. And just, and then even into now in 2005, whenever Chief Tootie was up there saying, this has to end, you know, we're not going to bow down and literally dying while standing up for it. Well, it's an insistence on pride and self-worth in the face of cultural oppression. It's about being proud of who you are. Yeah, and I think that while, you know, the Native Americans might have taken in the runaway slaves because there was some commonality there, there was some some understanding, you know, I think that that also can be seen the other way now is that some of it is honoring the Native Americans that took them in. And you'll hear them say that now is that, you know, we are proud of the you know Native American heritage that we have, little piece of that, and we're honoring the Native Americans that took us in whenever our forefathers escaped slavery. Larry Bannock, who's the big chief of the Golden Star Hunters, insists that black people who mask as Mardi Gras Indians do so out of respect for American Indians. He says, I'm a black Mardi Gras Indian, but every time I sew a patch, a piece of beadwork, it's spiritual, and it's about the Native American. And I think some people really do recognize it as like the the archetypical colonization story the story of the native americans i always joke that star wars was the hero's journey just done over three movies that's not a joke it's and real. I, like, but that's and well no the joke is that avatar is trying to do that with a colonization story oh right right and i do think that that's ascended to an archetype in our cultural context today and it's so relatable like you can summarize it in a paragraph or a picture And so I think that there is some recognition of that loss of culture, loss of land, loss of self that was perpetrated by the people trying to make America great first time that really rings true for a lot of people who have had to fight for their freedom, their rights, their space, their homes. And so I think that it it transcends just culture and becomes about a shared experience and forms a new culture. 
Cherise Harrison Nelson, who founded the Mardi Gras Indian Hall of Fame, said that it's mostly about defiance and self-determination. And many Indians feel they're showing their truest, innermost selves when they don their suits. In light of that, this feeling that you're your truest self when you're wearing a 300-pound, gorgeous, pretty, pretty costume, surrounded by members of your community, taking part in traditions and celebrating your culture, I don't think it can be appropriation. I think it's something new. It's fusion. It's almost like a phoenix that's come out of the ashes of all of this pain. It is glorious to behold, and it's true, and it's right, and it feels like power. And that spirit helps you hold that suit up. It's also helping you say, I won't bow down on that dirty ground. And I know that there's a chance that this doesn't make sense to outsiders, but everybody knows that they are the prettiest. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. Because we're the Indian, Indian, I mean, we're the Indians of the nation, the whole wide creation. We won't bow down, we won't bow down, not on the ground, not on the ground. Oh, how I love to hear you call. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.